0: This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. What is going on, everybody? Mike Freeland here with another installment of Overbooked as we chronicle the book. The Unauthorized Story of ECW. I hope everybody's doing well. I do know that uh, there is uh, about a week or so, maybe sometimes a little bit longer, in between chapters that we do. But I do appreciate you guys hanging in there with me and understanding uh, my schedule and everything. But I do want to go into a chapter that I think is going to be very pivotal in the story that we're covering here. And this is going to be Chapter 8, which is House Party 1996 endings and beginnings so this chapter really is going to chronicle uh, a lot of changes a lot of influx that's happening within ECW so we're going to talk about public enemy and the gangstas we're going to be talking about uh, Conan WCW we're going to be talking about a man debuting named Rob Van Dam we're going to talk about Axel Rotten, Beulah McGillicuddy, Tommy Dreamer and Raven The return of the franchise Shane Douglas, there's a story behind that. And also, Cactus Jack leaving, soon to be WWE bound, and becoming mankind. So, so much stuff to get to in this episode, so let's go ahead and let's jump right into it. So, 1996 in the world of ECW was evolving rapidly. And what I mean by that one is... You had a lot of comings and goings, obviously, as the chapter is entitled Endings and Beginnings. So, if 1995 uh, was, a, was a crazy year for ECW, 1996 was going to be a complete polar opposite of that. And what I mean by that is, is you had a lot of hot things happening in 1995. ECW was really getting their feet underneath them. They were getting their sea legs. They were developing a lot of different characters Paul was always trying to reinvent different stars and give them opportunities that other promotions just didn't give them, and I think that's where Paul was really unique with what he was doing. So in 1996, the house party was was very, very different. Public Enemy was taking on the Gangsters, and this was actually going to be Public Enemy's last match in ECW. Why, you say? Public Enemy had been reached out to by WCW and Eric Bischoff, and they had signed a contract to come in and wrestle for them. So the match went really well. They defeated the Gangsters in their final tag team match. But Public Enemy went ahead and took to the microphones after the match was over and said, you can take us out of ECW, Rocco Rock said, but you'll never take ECW out of us. Now, the Public Enemy got a rousing ovation from the fans. Literally two days later, Public Enemy was supposed to be heading to Nitro to make their debut. Unfortunately, a snowstorm in New Jersey prevented them from making their long-awaited debut. We will return back to what happened with the Public Enemy once they joined the ranks of WC w there's no doubt that the public enemy had left a lasting impression on ecw fans think about it from this perspective what paul Heyman was attempting to cultivate in ecw was different it was ushering in a new era not only of grunge rock not only of alternative rock but they were at the forefront of a new rebellion that was happening in wrestling they were huge fan favorites it wasn't just their matches that got them over in ECW, but it was the fact that they had this cult-like following. I mean, it was it was really something to see. And if, if you weren't, uh, I hate to say the word, alive in 1996 because some of our listeners are younger, but if you didn't see the public enemy in ECW, I highly recommend, if you have the network, to please go over to the network and watch some public enemy matches from ECW and just see the ruckusness and the... The fervent energy that emanated from the fans in the ECW arena whenever these guys came out and their music started playing. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember when they got everyone in the ring. I believe it was down in Florida and the ring collapsed. Once again, just a, another classic ECW moment with the Public Enemy. But they are off. They've signed new contracts with Eric Bischoff in World Championship Wrestling. So they are now in the rear view mirror of ECW. Now, It wasn't only their last appearances, but it was the last appearance of another wrestler, and that was Conan. Conan, who'd been a huge star in AAA, huge star in Mexico, Lucha Libre Wrestling, and was also known as one of the most creative minds as far as being a booker down in Mexico as well. And if you didn't know that about Conan, I think that is a very important aspect that a lot of wrestling fans need to know. Not only was Conan really good, but Conan was a booker, and he was one of the most respected bookers down in Mexico at the time as well. So he came into ECW, obviously, with uh, a good relationship with Paul Heyman. That's what started the big influx of the Mexican wrestlers that were coming in, the Psychosis and the Juventud Guerreros and the Rey Mysterios. And that's what kind of set ECW aside. Because think about it, prior to that, you really had not seen a lot of international stars in the WWF, and in WCW, outside of whatever their gimmick was supposed to be in those promotions. But he had a big, big hand in creating the platform, in creating the stage to allow a lot of Mexican stars to get seen. So that was a big deal. It was interesting as I was reading this chapter, uh, Conan would go on to say that he was not really understanding of one particular character in ECW and he said I just don't get the Sandman and obviously a lot of wrestling fans the dirt sheets had started to circulate fans knew that Conan was going to be leaving for WCW so the fans in the in the arena were chanting bye bye Conan and uh, Sandman's gonna kill you which is interesting because we would often hear that same chant with Samoa Joe many, many 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 years later but Conan did admit that he finally did understand why the Sandman was such uh, such a polarizing character in ECW, and that the man himself was very unique as well, because a lot of people saw the Sandman as this drunk who, and we talk about this on Front Row Material, you know, who has basically pickled himself with the amounts of alcohol that he's consumed. But at the end of the day, if if you don't know the man behind the character i think that's something you definitely need to check out because when it comes to him you know the sandman would read the new york times the sandman was was big on you know jeopardy and we would hear stories about how he and sinister minister uh, james mitchell would be sitting in their hotel rooms and they would be just going over all different kinds of things that are going on in the world and talking about Uh, historical moments and geography, and it it just wasn't something that you would think that you would be hearing coming from someone like the Sandman. So Conan's experiences were basically with, with him backstage, and he said, I heard about the things going on with him, that he was a drunk, but I didn't think much about it, he said. I mean, these guys are doing insane things out there. And then there's the Sandman. He's drinking a case of beer before he goes to the ring. He says, Nancy Benoit told him before a match, if he goes out there and anything gets out of hand, you put him in his place. I thought that was an interesting line there uh, from Nancy. You know, a lot of people had mentioned before that they didn't want to work with Sandman because of his drinking. But then on the flip side, you would hear a lot of people say that he still performed really well and they did not feel like he was a a legitimate danger or a legitimate threat to their safety when it came to performing in the ring. But once again, I think it depends on on who you talk to. But Conan originally said, I just don't get the character. I don't understand. What is the appeal of the Sandman? And then he said he finally could start to see why people were cheering for the sandman why people were were so excited when his music hit and he started to realize that a lot of the fans could see themselves inside the sandman this is a quote from conan in the book it says the sandman was just a guy he was just like the guy sitting behind the rail watching all the matches conan would say he had no problem having a beer after the matches with a guy who had been telling him to go fuck himself earlier during a match a lot of the other wrestlers were too aloof But he was willing to sit down and shoot the shit, and he had no problem putting his body on the line for those fans. And that, to me, showed me the love he had for ECW. It was really interesting because, you know, when you start to peel back the layers of a lot of professional wrestlers, you start to understand that... Their character isn't too far off from who they are as a real person, but I think with the Sandman, you started to realize that the the line was was really blurred between who the Sandman character was and who he was as a man in real life, but he didn't mind if he won or lost. He didn't mind putting people over. Um, He was the type of guy who wanted to do what was best for ECW, and I think in a time where everyone was all about making money, everybody was about wanting to go ahead and you know, be the predominant star on the roster, he just wanted to go out there and do whatever it took to take ECW to the next level. The Sandman represented, this is another quote, um, what was important about ECW, and that was that most of the guys never had a problem with working with him, Um, and he never had a problem with doing jobs for anyone, says Bob Ortiz. The guys were always willing to do what was best for the company. The one I was impressed with the most was Sandman because he never had a problem putting anyone over. What he cared about was doing what was best for ECW, even if it was getting pinned, whatever happened. Do you think that, let me pose this question to you, do you think that there's a lot of stars now who feel that same way? You know, we often talk about the phrase pin me, pay me on our main show, Front Row Material. And I think there's there's a context that you have to understand which in that statement is being made. There are some people out there who believe, you know what, there's so many politics that are involved in wrestling, so it doesn't matter how good you are, and, and Jerry Lynn will even tell you this, it doesn't matter how necessarily how good you are, or how talented you are, or how great on the microphone you are, sometimes, and, and this isn't always the case, but sometimes, it, it's what happens backstage. If somebody, a promoter, or let's say a booker, uh, head writers, if they want to get behind you they will, if they don't they won't so you need to find a way to make yourself indelible and you need to make find a way to make yourself connect with the audience that really you know, kind of pushes the envelope and tells the office that guess what, this guy's going to be a big star, but unfortunately politics plays a big part in it and at the end of the day some wrestlers are so sick of the politics they say I don't care what you do with me as long as my check clears, just let me go ahead and make my money and let me go home. So it, there's so many things to wrestling, in my opinion, that I feel fascinated about because, you know, take the Sandman aside for for a second here. Let's use the example of the Ultimate Warrior. Now, as we will find out, and obviously if you're a, a big-time wrestling fan, you will find out that the Ultimate Warrior was uh, talking with Paul Heyman about potentially coming in to ECW, uh, which would have gone well, would had not gone well. I, I'm not exactly sure at this point in time. I'm not sure if the Ultimate Warrior's character would have worked in in ECW. But nonetheless, if a promoter wants to get behind somebody, like take Vince McMahon for example, and he really wants to put a rocket ship on someone's ass and, and shoot them to the moon, then that's what's going to happen. You know, Vince can make a star out of somebody despite maybe what the audience wants. And we've seen this with Roman Reigns as well. It's a situation where the fans aren't necessarily behind a specific wrestler because they just don't gravitate towards him, they don't connect with him, you know. But if that's what The Office wants, That's what the office is going to do, and I think that sometimes upsets a lot of wrestling fans because they're like, wait a minute, this is not right. We're ones paying the money to buy the tickets and buy the merchandise, and you're not listening to us? So I think that's what separated Paul from a Vince McMahon or from an Eric Bischoff specifically during this time in wrestling was that Paul listened to the audience. And Paul also got the input from the wrestlers as well. He wanted to talk to them and say, what are your thoughts on this? How would you like to do this? Mikey and Jerry will often tell you specifically, Mikey will say, you know, Paul basically gave us some bullet points and let us go out there and tell our story. And it wasn't so much that, I don't know, that you were being scripted what to do, what to say, how to step, how to work. And... Mikey tells a great story on the most recent episode of Front Row Material how he went out and had an unbelievable match with Billy Kidman at Uncensored. And he actually was kind of reprimanded for going out there and having the type of match that he had, which a lot of people think was a phenomenal match. But once again, that's the thing. you know. It, it doesn't matter how good you do or how hard you work sometimes. It depends on if the people that are in charge, the powers that be, want to see you succeed or they do not. And it was clear that the Sandman cared and Paul cared about the Sandman and wanted to see him succeed. So I think that was awesome. I know I just went on a huge uh, kind of a a U-turn here from our conversation, but I, I just wanted to impress upon that. And the fact that Conan in the beginning didn't understand the whole aspect of what the Sandman was all about, but yet he really... He really started to understand that he was every man's man. And when we even look at this now, I mean, I don't want to say that Steve Austin in some ways ripped off the Sandman, but let's think about it from this perspective. I mean, during this time, Steve Austin wasn't the Hellraiser beer drinker, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. That was the Sandman. And everything in wrestling is taken or borrowed or whatever you want to refer to it as from somebody else who had previously done it. And some guys will put their own twist on it. But I think the Sandman was very revolutionary with his character. And I think a lot of the things that the Sandman had said and done, especially with the kendo stick, smoking the cigarette, drinking the beer, I think a lot of those were were taken and uh, infused into the Attitude Era. So not only is all of this happening, not only is... Conan leaving, giving props to the Sandman, putting him over, the public enemy leaving, defeating the gangsters, and signing contracts with WCW. Something else was happening. In 1996, a new star was debuting in ECW, and that was Rob Van Dam. So the person who had the duties of taking Rob into the ring and kind of working with him was Axel Rotten. So in the second match of the night, Axel Rotten faced a debuting Rob Van Dam. Now Van Dam was trained under the Sheik. So don't get confused with the Iron Sheik, which was in the WWF. This is the original Sheik, which was actually the uncle of Sabu. So you're starting to see the kind of interweavings of everybody here within the wrestling industry. Everybody is somehow associated or tied to somebody else. So... Axel Rotten would go on to say, you know, Rob Van Dam in his first match here was not the high-flying, whole-effin' show that he would become one day. Uh, it was more of a, a, a project, you know. So Axel went ahead and worked with him, but they saw a lot of potential in him, and he knew that he wasn't going to be able to get him over um, unless they really put some things together, and Paul entrusted in Axel to go ahead and go out there, work with Rob, show him the ropes, and kind of get out of him what Paul saw, or what Paul saw the potential in Rob to be. And um, But it was funny because Axel said, to be honest, initially Rob had no clue what was going on. So it's just interesting. I mean, everybody has to start out somewhere, and I think Axel Rotten, obviously being the one to take Rob Van Dam in the ring for the first time and kind of show him the ropes and work with him, try to get him over with the audience. You know, it's good to have a veteran who understands that aspect of it. And I think that was another thing that was really cool about ECW is you had some of these people who were veterans who understood what Paul was trying to do. And what Paul was trying to do was cultivate new stars. Paul was trying to infuse different styles into... What the ECW brand was because you had your brawlers, which obviously Axel was one of those. You would have your tables and your thumbtacks and your chairs, but then you'd have your technical wrestlers, like your Eddie Guerrero's and like your Chris Benoit's and like your Chris Jericho's, and then you have your Lucha Libre's, you know, which what Conan brought into the company from AAA down in Mexico. So what Paul was able to successfully do was he was able to tap into all different genres of wrestling where... During that same time, WCW and the WWF really weren't. They were really all kind of doing very similar, very safe, um, not very controversial things. But Paul realized that I don't have the budget that they have. I don't have a company that's big as they are. They have national television. I have to do something different to make us stand out. So I thought that was awesome, and I give complete credit to Axel for what he did, obviously helping groom... Rob Van Dam now obviously when it comes to the soap opera aspect of it Paul also knew that he needed to cook cook up another angle that was going to be interesting and that uh, wow that's mild to say the least in in my opinion so in effort to give fans something to remember besides everybody leaving on that show Heyman also cooked up an angle in which Beulah McGilligetty would announce that she was pregnant by Tommy Dreamer The angle turned into Dreamer's first real measure of revenge because he took Raven's girl and beat him up. However, still, the continuing element between the feud was that Dreamer still could never get a win over Raven, and that storyline would continue for another year. An interesting aspect of House Party 1996 involves a story about Paul Heyman, Vince McMahon, and a formerly known Dean Douglas. So if you remember from a previous chapter, we talked about how Shane Douglas had decided to leave ECW and go to the WWF. Well, when Vince McMahon flew Shane and his wife, they wined him, dined him, we talked about how they gave them tickets uh, to the Met, how they gave them brand new wardrobes, Uh, chocolates on their pillows in their five-star hotel. And then when they met at Titan Towers, Vince actually took the hand of Shane's wife in his hand and promised that he would take care of Shane and that they both would be a very wealthy couple. Now, Shane's wife, as we talked about, she had some reservations as well. She realized that he was not only a wrestler, but he was also a full-time school teacher at that time. So Shane was making about forty grand a year being a school teacher, and he was making about $100,000 a year being a wrestler. So, you know, a pre-tax income of about hundred and forty dollars which is a lot of money. And his wife said that he was home all the time, every night, wasn't really on the road. So why should she believe that this is going to be better for their relationship and better for their family? Well... It's one of these situations where you want to believe Vince McMahon, you want to believe what he says, and a lot of people speak very glowing of Vince McMahon, but then there's that other side. There's that contingent of people who do not seem to believe a word that comes out of his mouth, and you know, I don't really blame Shane for doing the Dean Douglas character, but as we talked about in the previous chapter, how you know when it came to doing promos... Everything would be written out for him. There would be multiple producers around him, and it just never quite worked out. Vince McMahon leaves the room. Shane Douglas, in the Dean Douglas character, cuts a promo. Everybody loves it. The second Vince walks back in, all of his lackeys basically said, no, we agree with you, Vince. It should be done this way. And Shane started to realize pretty quick the writing was on the wall and how different the WWF was than what was happening with Paul and ECW. So Shane was still under contract and he showed up at this event and walked into backstage and surprised Paul Heyman. And he said, Paul, I wanna make a run in. Paul said, you can't do that. You're still under contract with the World Wrestling Federation. He goes, I'm gonna get sued. You're gonna get sued. It's not gonna go well for anybody. Shane basically tells Paul that we need to come up with something because I'm not going back to that company at all. So it's interesting because Shane tells the story that Paul then gets on the phone and says, he calls Vince McMahon and says, listen, you know, it doesn't seem like this relationship's gonna be able to be salvaged. Shane says that you did him dirty and that you lied to him. He says, listen, he's not coming back. So how about we work something out that works for both of us? How about I take him off your hands? And Vince agreed right then and there. He said, fine, if you want him, he is yours. The second Paul gets off the phone, he tells Shane, and Shane ends up going out to the ring and cutting a huge promo. People are excited that he is back in ECW. And a lot of people were chanting, uh, Dean is dead. So Shane Douglas is officially back. The ECW faithful welcome him back. They are so glad that this whole Dean Douglas experience is now over. They can all put that uh, behind them. But unfortunately, the night continues, and uh, another superstar would be leaving the company. House Party 1996 was the first of two shows after which Cactus Jack had publicly announced his departure from ECW as he was heading to the World Wrestling Federation. So, Cactus Jack had been in ECW for quite a while. The ECW faithful really did love Cactus Jack, but the fans also did realize that this was a business and that guys were going to come and go. And Cactus Jack got a rousing ovation in his very last night in ECW, and everybody basically thanked him for what he did. And at the end of the night, a lot of the talent would end up going to a local bar, uh, the Holiday Inn that was right around the corner. And a very interesting comment here from ECW fan, John Hat Guy Bailey. He said he was sitting there talking to Cactus. And this just shows the example between the bond between ECW wrestlers and the fans. This is, uh, this is John Bailey. After the show, we usually went to the Holiday Inn right around the corner. The last night Cactus Jack was in, We were all in the same room having a couple of beers. Foley said, you'll never be John to me. You'll always be the hat guy. Terry Funk once told me that when he didn't see me sitting ringside, that would be the day he retired. So, so many things are going on here, which is such a difficult thing because look at what's happening with Paul. I mean, despite what you may believe, or what has been written about, what is fact, what is fiction, that Paul was obviously in business with both WCW and the WWF the entire time. Many people believe that ECW was the early versions of what NXT is, basically being a feeder a promotion for the two other companies, but a lot happening. And you know when you look at this chapter and you look at the public enemy leaving, obviously for WCW for more money, When you see that uh, Conan leaving WCW, more money. And then you see Paul basically trying to do whatever he can to keep things going here. He finally sees that Shane's coming back. He starts building up the feud again with the pregnancy with Tommy Dreamer and Raven. I think that went really well. Um, The debut of RVD, we knew what he would soon to become Obviously, they lose Cactus Jack, but at the end of the day, Paul continues to try to find ways to reinvent his company. I give Paul a lot of credit. This, this, When I read these chapters, and, and obviously for, through these first eight chapters, you start to understand that Paul was going against the odds from day one. He didn't really have a roster that was going to stay consistent for years and years and years. I mean, obviously, the company wasn't around for a tremendous amount of time. But it was always in flux, and whenever WCW was offering guaranteed money, Paul obviously couldn't do that. Um, it, it just made things very difficult. But what endeared people to Paul and ECW was is the fact that they felt like Paul really had their best interest at heart. They also felt that when it came to, to ECW, they were creatively able to have a lot more in their character and to do more regarding their character. Their promos weren't scripted. They were more passionate because they came from the heart. A lot of wrestlers within ECW loved Paul so much because Paul realized that if you're going to get the best out of somebody, you need to let them infuse as much of them as possible into their character. So... Good chapter, it was uh, it was a shorter chapter, it got some great images in there as well, so uh, obviously if you're looking at this from either a Kindle or your iPhone or an Android, you're going to get some really, really good colorful pictures in there as well that kind of, that tells the story in a timeline way uh, of what was happening here in 1996, so... Once again, recap of what was happening. Hope you guys enjoyed Chapter 8. So many different things that are going to be going on here as we move on into Chapter 9. I am so excited about Chapter 9 because you know what this is going to be? This is going to be a really, really good one because we are going to be talking about one of the most polarizing and controversial figures in wrestling. That is going to be Brian Pillman. So we will be chronicling Brian Pillman in Chapter Nine. If you have any questions about what we talked about here in Chapter 8, or you have any uh, thoughts, views, opinions, anything to that nature, by all means, hit me up on social media. I am at Mike Freeland on Twitter. And don't forget, Front Row Material, our flagship show, drops each And every Wednesday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the MLW Radio Network. All right, guys, that's going to do it. Hope you enjoyed Chapter 8. Until we speak again on Chapter 9, I'm Mike Freeland. I'll catch you guys next time.